You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we will continue our series dealing with how we are to live Uh, with one another as the body of Christ, how we're to treat one another. Um, And so hopefully you have been a part of this series. If not, uh, let me just kind of remind you that there are 59 different places in Scripture where we see the words one another explicitly used, um, and those flow out of Jesus' command to love one another. And so Jesus teaches us how we are to love one another, in, uh, as he, teaches, he taught his disciples as they walked together, and yet his disciples go on teaching us what that looks like uh, on a regular basis, everyday life in the church. And sometimes uh, those commands are easier than others. Certainly last week uh, we were in Ephesians 4, and uh, you, you will have heard uh, that it is our responsibility to forgive one another. And how many of you say that's a hard thing to do sometimes? Uh, hard to, to enact forgiveness in our life and some things that maybe we would put that into categories as forgivable and unforgivable. But at the end of the day, it is a command of Scripture. Well, this week we jump one chapter forward to Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, we go right in the middle of this chapter. And what, we're, what we find interesting about Ephesians 5 is that in this, in this one particular paragraph, it, it becomes the climax of what Paul is teaching in Ephesians 4 through 6. Uh, if you've studied the book of Ephesians, and by the way, we will, uh, Lord willing, in, in, a few, uh, in a couple of months, we'll start into the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Um, but if you study the book of Ephesians, you know that the first three chapters are all about the gospel. Uh, just incredible, mysterious, kind of grand truths about what God is doing in the world and how He is redeeming Himself a people. And, and He's done that from the very foundation of the world. It, it's not plan B. It's not something that, that uh, God just kind of had to come up with a backup plan. Uh, this is something God intended to do from the very beginning. And Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus of these glorious truths of the gospel. And then when you get to chapter 4 through 6, you, you have some statements about conduct and how they're to live their lives as a result of the gospel. In fact, chapter 4, the very first verse, tells us that we're to walk in a, worthy, in, a, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel through which we have been called. And so chapters 4 through 6 really deal with that and, and kind of unpack what that looks like in the life of a believer. But in the, in the middle of the section, it's almost as if the climax is at the middle of the story. And Paul gets to this one place and and essentially says, by the way, let me just tell you what I'm telling you. I really want you to get the main idea of what I'm trying to get across. Sure, it is is, uh, composed by a bunch of different smaller things, but I want you to get this main thing. And then as part of that main thought, 
he gives us two different one another commands. And so we're going to look at those over the next couple of weeks. We want to focus primarily on the first one this morning as we look at God's Word. So let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. If you found your place there, Ephesians chapter 5, look with me beginning at verse 15. The Bible says, look carefully then, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that as we come again to Your Word that we would be reminded of how we are to Love one another. I pray, God, that we would be instructed here in how to live our lives as a part of the church, members of one another, your word says. I pray, God, that, that, um, God, that you would teach us and convict us where we have been wrong. Open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe what is here in your word. And then, Lord, I pray that you would guard us this morning from making simply some sort of an ethical plea. From your word, God, may we see these things as rooted in and the outflowing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we respond to the gospel this morning. There's one here that's never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they don't have the hope that we describe, and they don't have the hope that your word speaks of and that we've sung about this morning. I I pray. God, that you would open up their heart to their need for Jesus and that today they would surrender completely their lives to him because in you alone is our hope. Because you shed your blood for us, died in our place and rose again. And today we can trust in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would have your will and your way in our hearts and in this place. I ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So Ephesians chapter 5, just to give you a warning right up front, we have got a lot of groundwork to cover before we actually get to what Paul gives us as a one another command. Uh, There is so much in this passage that deserves much attention, um, and unfortunately we can only really give it a flyover in order to lay the groundwork to where we're going this morning with our one another command. So the main idea of the, of the passage is going to be um, common with the main idea of, uh, of the one another command, but we've got to get there. Y'all with me this morning? We've got to just kind of work our way to it, right? So there in this passage, Paul is giving again the climax of what he's been saying in chapters 4 through 6. What then is the main idea of chapters 4 through 6? You'll notice it there in, in verse 15. He says... Look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, but not as unwise, rather, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
In other words, in all that Paul is saying to the church, he says to them, I want you to look carefully at how you walk. Be very careful about the way that you live. What what does he mean by look carefully at how you walk? He's describing our conduct, our lifestyle, the choices that we make. The decisions that we make on a daily basis or in life in general. The trajectory of our lives. Those everyday thoughts and convictions about our lives. He says, be careful about those things. And not just, not just be careful. There's a certain urgency. An importance about, about guarding our walk. And so I use that word that he is telling us to guard our walk very carefully. How we how we live, how we conduct ourselves. If you've been reading the book of Ephesians, kind of as we've been walking through, Ephesians 4.1 is a very similar statement. He began with this. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which to which you have been called. Paul is desperately concerned about the way we as God's people walk together. And I would say to you this morning that that is an important thing for us as well. And here is the reason. It's the same reason that Paul gives here in this passage. Notice the reason he says to look carefully how we walk. All the way at the beginning of verse 16, he says, or the end of verse 16, he says, because the days are evil. How many of you know we live in a day that it is difficult to live as a Christian? How many of you know that? Be it here in our country, but certainly we could say overseas, those who are dying for their faith on a daily basis, those who have to worship Jesus in hiding in our country, it's growing more and more unpopular. And uh, I, I just want to tell you that if you live very much longer, you're going to see the days that it gets even more unpopular. And we may even face some of the things that, that people are facing overseas. The reality is we live in a world that is hostile to God. A world that does not want to follow Jesus. And although there may be some, even in our culture, that give a certain semblance of of saying, yes, I believe in Jesus and I, I think Jesus is God, it is very different than, it is very different to believe a set of facts than it is to actually live our lives according to that belief. That's what the Bible calls faith. It's more than to acknowledge the fact of something, but rather to align your life your life with an entirely new worldview, whereby your life is now surrendered to the full cause of Jesus Christ, His kingdom, His will, His authority. He is Lord over all. The world around you, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, if that classifies who you are, the world around you does not uh, take very kindly to that kind of life or that kind of a stand. The reality is, if we're going to live in this world, the temptation will be all around us at every single moment to bend to that pressure. Be it at school for our teenagers or our children, be it in the workplace, uh, be it in education, be it anywhere, we have the temptation all around us to cave into what the world calls right. And so he says, guard your walk. Guard your life. Guard it carefully. Look carefully at how you walk. And he explains it by offering three different statements that begin with not, 
but. So in other words, he's saying, I don't want you to do this, but this is what I'm describing. So notice that there he begins with that we should walk not as unwise, but as wise. Not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 15. So to, walk, to guard our walk means that we walk in wisdom, not opposite of that which would be without wisdom. Of course, we can think about this in terms of what Paul has been saying in, in Ephesians. He says that in verse chapter 5 and verse 2 that we're to walk in love. And so he's describing that we should love one another. In chapter 5 and verse 8, he describes that he says that we should walk as children of light, not as children of darkness. It's the idea of being holy and righteous in our, in our conduct. But here he mentions it in a different way, and he says wisdom. Now, you might think of different things as you think about wisdom. You might think of the book of Proverbs that tells us all about how to live lives of wisdom. Or you might think of the book of James, which actually becomes kind of a a New Testament version of Proverbs to give us wise kind of counsel in living. But it's not the wisdom that that Paul is describing here. I don't think nonetheless, it's not the kind of wisdom that he's that he uses all throughout the rest of the book. If you were to just begin at chapter one, then you would find wisdom mentioned in these kinds of passages. Paul says in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, listen, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. He's describing redemption. Again, chapter 1 and verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in us. This wisdom kind of picture. He's praying for the church that their hearts would be enlightened. Again, chapter 3 and verse 8. To me, who am least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that the church so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places the wisdom that Paul is describing is in fact the gospel to walk in a way that would be in accordance with this deep eternal wisdom of God that he has made known to us through Christ and so he says walk in a way that is Consistent with the gospel, in other words. And, and to walk in wisdom means that we're walking in that kind of a way. It's the mystery of redemption and the, the wisdom of God coming together in, in one place. That's why he says in verse 16 that we should make the best use of our time. Redeeming the time. Just as God has redeemed us in Christ. There is a sense in which all of the time we lost in sin, we are buying back and living now for the gospel. That's what Paul is describing. We live for the kingdom and God's righteousness. And so not as unwise, but wise. Then he says, not as foolish, but then understanding the will of God. See it there in verse 16. Making the best use of time. Or verse 17, rather. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Is Now, of course, we know the will of God by looking at God's word and we we know that to guard our walk, we've got to know and we've got to read and and we've got to obey God's word. That's that's clear. The word of God guards our walk. 
Frequently there are Christians who understand knowing the will of God as knowing something specific in terms of personal guidance in my own life. I, I want to know who I need to marry. I want to know what job I need to take. I, I want to know if, if I need to move, if I don't need to move, if I need to buy this house or not buy that house. All of these different things, we look for personal guidance. And I would say that this passage does not neglect that. We need those things. But at the end of the day, the will is the deep, eternal will of God that he's describing. You see, we understand our lives not within the framework of personal decision. We understand our lives first within the framework of this deep mystery that God has given us in the gospel. Your life is no longer your own. The most important decision you will ever make is not what job you will take. The most important decisions you will ever make in your life are those decisions you make for the kingdom. You want to guard your walk? Stop thinking about your job and stop thinking about all of these individual decisions you make every day and spend your life focused on the kingdom and chase after that. Then all of those other things look at those things through the filter of God's word in this kingdom. So you want to know God's will in your life? Live for the will of God that you already know. And God will make all of those other things clear. So not as foolish, but understanding God's will. And then he says, not filled with wine, but filled with the Spirit. And by the way, this brings us really to the crux of where we're coming this morning. This is where we want to narrow in the focus of these one another commands. Verses 18 through 21 are really one sentence. If you were to see this in the Greek language, you'd see that it's all one sentence. Beginning at verse 18 and ending at verse 21. So when he says, do not get drunk with wine, that's not an isolated command. It becomes really important in a moment, but it's not an isolated command. In fact, the main command is, but be filled with the Spirit. That's his intent. Paul is saying, it's not that we should get drunk with wine, but quite oppositely. We should be filled with the Spirit. Maybe in the same way that that you would be filled with alcohol and it would be a controlling substance in your life and it would guide your thoughts and your emotions that it would be the thing on which you lean. Paul is saying, no, be filled with the Spirit in that way instead. Because being filled with wine is debauchery. Or you might see that as immorality, a, a, a sin against a holy God. Certainly, drunkenness is a sin against God. It's not primarily about alcohol, but it does tell us some things about alcohol. It is a controlling substance. It's something that God never intended that we partake of and become drunk in. Wine is used in the Bible in a multitude of ways in in celebration as well as um, in dealing with sickness. And and there's other ways that that wine is actually um, something to use. But at the same time, it should never become a controlling substance. And this is interesting because... Paul's version of what it means to get drunk. Notice there is no blood alcohol level there mentioned out beside the word drunk. And I want to be very guarded when I tell you and very very pointed and specific when I tell you that the Bible has kind of a different kind of a different definition of what it means to be drunk. This is just side note. The Bible describes being drunk as being being ruled over by that substance. Everywhere that we see drunkenness or insobriety in Scripture, it is a lack of control and a a lack of um, awareness and, and those kinds of things. And so there isn't a number here, but you might think about it in this way. In the same way 
that the Spirit is to control us, we give ourselves to so many other things that control us instead. And that in itself is insobriety. And so to give yourself to alcohol in a way that you should be giving yourself to the Spirit of God is drunkenness. So it's entirely possible. And I'll just give you one example and we're we're going to move on. But I'm just going to give you one example of how drunkenness could be outside of the legal definition as you might think of it. Some people use alcohol as a place to find comfort. They may never get legally drunk, but they, they use alcohol to take the edge off, to find relief from their day, to let their hair down, so to speak. But isn't it Jesus who said that the Holy Spirit is our comforter? That God is our place of refuge and strength. And so when we use alcohol as that, then actually we are crossing the line of drunkenness. And so that's just one example. So Paul takes that idea and he says, okay, I want the church to look like a place that instead of being drunk on all these other things, alcohol namely, that they would be so filled with the Spirit of God that there would be obvious effects the outworking of that within the body and outside of the body would be so pronounced that no one would miss it. And so he says that there's some things that flow out of that and really gets to the heart of our idea this morning. He says that Spirit-filled Christians, these kinds of people that are led by the Spirit, they address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They sing and make melody in their heart to the Lord. They give thanks always to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they submit to one another in reverence or out of reverence to Christ. This is what a spirit-filled church looks like. Interestingly, this paragraph specifically applies that not to an individual only, but it becomes corporate, a whole group of people that this is applied to. And it really sets the stage for the one another commands. Now, that's a lot of groundwork to lay before we get to really the main idea of the message this morning. And so I want you to see these be filled with the spirit. And then he says, addressing one another in hymns, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That's really the same thing as singing to one another. Thanks kind of flows out of that. And then he says, submitting to one another. We're going to come to that next week. So those first three things really wrap up into one picture of what it means to be Spirit-filled. Don't you notice what it is? It's a picture of congregational singing. It's a picture of the church coming together and singing songs together. That's what it means. That's what we notice when we see a Spirit-filled church. I think this is incredibly helpful, helpful for us to think about, especially when we think about our context today and how we gather for worship services and how there's all kinds of debate over music and music style and, and how the service should flow and all of those different things. It's, it's so incredibly helpful for us because we have to ask the fundamental question, don't we? We have to ask, when we come together, what then is the purpose of music? What is the purpose of our singing together? And I ask that question and say that it's helpful because there's so much distortion over what music should and should not be, isn't there? 
In fact, some would even glorify music and make more out of it than what it's intended to be. Make it just to be front and center stage. And then there are others who would say that music is a non-essential. Like, can we just sing a couple of songs, a couple of verses, and just get on to the preaching? Because that's the most important part. And yes, I would argue that, that preaching is central to the life of the church, but that, but that singing is not non-essential to the life of the church. We're commanded here to sing. This is what it looks like to be Spirit-filled. Music has been distorted to look like just simply entertainment for the saints. Where we think that we come together and we hear some songs from a platform or maybe in a concert style where you're out there and there's people up here that are singing and we listen to them and we're entertained. That's not at all what music was intended to be. It has sometimes been viewed as attraction for the lost. So if we sing the right kinds of music and the right kinds of songs and it has the right kind of beat, that it will be more attractive to the culture around us. And that's certainly what, not what music is all about. Sometimes emotionalism is the key to our music. We want to give a rise and a stir. And, and if people are raising their hands and if we are, if we are just, just driven emotionally, and the whole atmosphere is charged, then we must be doing congregational singing right. And, and I would say to you that emotion should accompany our singing, but certainly it is not ultimate. Some would attach sentimentalism to music. If we sing the songs that we've always loved, then those are the songs that we'll always worship to. And, and in fact, Paul really refutes that idea here in this passage. That sentimentalism is not ultimate in singing. What then is ultimate in singing? Don't we have to ask that question? We have to ask what is it that singing is for in the church? And this sentence that's before you this morning I think is what Paul is trying to get at. Remember that it is, it is part of a spirit-filled church which spirit-filledness is the very thing which we do to guard our walk. So what is it that singing is doing? It's there before you. Congregational singing is a gracious gift from God to the church that results from the filling of His Spirit and aids in guarding our walk. If you want to know why we sing biblically, this is it. We sing because it is an expression of the heart that is full of God's Spirit. And it is an aid, and we don't think about this, but it is an aid to guarding our walk. You want to guard your walk and walk worthy of the gospel, then you ought to be a Christian who sings and who participates in corporate singing. Some of you would say, well, we're talking about loving responses. The church is supposed to love one another. And pastor, if you really think I love people, I'm not going to sing around here. That's more loving than, than singing because nobody wants to hear this voice. Uh, but Scripture says that we're to sing, and not just sing, but sing together. And you just think about it, right? Think about your Bible. You don't have to go very far. You don't even have to read your Bible before you discover that the Bible is really, really feels strongly, that God really feels strongly that God's people sing together. What is the longest book in your Bible? The songbook. Psalm. So much of Scripture is filled with songs. And think about just some of them. 
Psalm, 40, Psalm 71, if, 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 we, if we just view them as songs, then we know we're supposed to sing. But even the songs themselves say, sing to the Lord. Look at Psalm 71, verse 23. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Psalm 86, or Psalm rather, 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. Psalm 104. I will sing to the Lord. Listen to what He says. As long as I live, I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. You see, Scripture has a rich commitment to music, and we should have a rich commitment to music. Inasmuch as we are spirit-filled, we will sing. And inasmuch as we have a desire to guard our walk, we will sing. Loving one another. We sing to one another. Speak in songs to one another. And so if spirit-filled, walk-guarding, congregation singing is our aim, then what will it look like? I think that it's interesting that Ephesians, the one church that's commanded to sing, is the very church who at the end is who is rebuked and warned about leaving their first love there is a there is a certain there is a certain fullness to our singing that is being filled with the spirit so what does it look like i think that there are at least five things that we can see from this text that should be important when we think about singing if it is god's gift what should it look like in our lives well number 1 congregational singing should be truthful. Truthful. And I put that one very first because I think that that is the idea that, is, that it sets for us in the entire book of Ephesians. But certainly that should be first above all things. Notice that when they sing, they are to address one another in psalms, which is the idea, I think, of psalms from the Old Testament, there should be truth there, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. You can't make a melody to the Lord if you're not singing in truth, submitting to one another. There's a sense in which the truth is brought into our lives through song and we submit to one another. And so our singing should be truthful. We should sing good theological music. I've often made the statement that if theology does not precede our doxology, we're doing it wrong. If we are not singing about the truth of God's Word and and the substance of that song has not penetrated our hearts, then we have not engaged in congregational singing. We're just simply singing along with some of us like the radio, like we might to any other song. But Christian Singing, congregational singing is theological. That means that it is not primarily about style. It is first primarily about substance. That doesn't mean that style is unimportant. But the primary reason we sing what we sing is lyrical content. 
And I hope that as we sing in church and as you sing songs that, that the Lord just lays on your heart throughout the week, that it's lyrical content. And I want to say to you this, that if it is the lyrical content that is our focus and that we are sensitive to the, the cultural needs, we're going to come back to that in a moment, that we can sing just about anything to any tune, to any beat, and if that content, that lyrical content is godly, and it is God-honoring, and it is encouraging us in the truth, then it ought to be a song that we sing. If it is truthful. Congregational singing should be truthful. Secondly, conversation, or congregational singing should be instructional should be instructional. If our singing guards the walk, and if our singing brings about some atmosphere in which we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, again, we're coming back to that next week. But if that's true, then something about our singing is instructional. When I sing, it reminds me how I am to live what I am to believe about God, it takes truths that I've read in Scripture and sinks them deep down into my heart. I had the opportunity to spend some time over in Crestview uh, with a homeschooling group this week. and uh, some of, Anyway, I got, got to spend time with them. And one of the things that I noticed about this group, and, and I think all of us have done this, maybe with our kids and, and Sunday school growing up. But one of, the, one of the big things about this group is that they sing songs that are intended to be instructional. There's truth made with melody so that it is so stuck in our head and in our heart that it's just something we, we will never forget. Whether you know it or not, the songs that you sing in church have become instructional down through the years in your life. And by the way, that's sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. We gain a lot of our theology from the songs that we sing. This is why it's so important that we begin with truth. And as you sing these songs, you, you learn some things about God. You learn some things about the story. There's, there's truths that sink deeply into your heart and you're corrected. I, I think that songs in, encourage us and songs convict us and, and songs remind us of who we are in Christ and all of those things. And they set it down deep in who we are. Music is a heart language, but it takes lyrics, it takes truth and sinks it down into our hearts and it helps us to guard our walk. It's really hard to sing Songs about encouragement and to be discouraged, isn't it? Brother Curtis will tell you that. It's really hard to sing those songs and be discouraged. It's really hard to sing songs about our anchor holding within the veil and feel like we are cast down and destroyed and guilty and like God has forgotten about us. I, th I think about there's one song that I sing often that, that um, is just one of, one of the songs that ministers to me deeply and it, and it says before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me those kinds of lyrics remind me of Hebrews and how I have this one who is interceding on my behalf reminds us of truth it's instructional third congregational singing should be celebratory amen brother Curtis should be a celebration when we come to church, it should be something that we celebrate. 
Notice that they are spirit-filled. They are not drunk. But it is interesting that Paul would use that illustration to describe them. (laughs) That they should be so filled that it it looks like that it's the greatest celebration. Now, I don't don't know about you, but um, just noticing noticing, uh, parties that are out in the world... Uh, some a lot of times alcohol is involved, and you can tell they're having a good time. Amen. It ends in destruction, uh, but the, you can tell they're having a good time at least in the moment. And you ought to you ought to look at a church and be able to tell that they're celebrating what God has done in their life by the kind of spirit that's here. And you say, well, that just sounds crazy, Pastor. Well, that's not anything different than what happened in Act, in Acts chapter two, is it? They could, they said they they must be drunk. They must be drunk because they're speaking in all these languages, and it's just. It's such a celebration. What if the church here, what if we celebrated and, and whenever we celebrated, it was just an amazing thing, a foreign thing to someone who doesn't know that kind of celebration. Because in Christ we have such great hope and we should be filled with that. And yes, there are moments in our lives where we have the worst day we could ever have and everything falls apart. But there is a celebration among God's people, be it with tears, but a celebration that our hope is in Christ and we could look to no other. We should celebrate that. Congregational singing is celebratory, should be celebratory. Fourth, congregational singing should be confessional. Should be confessional. There is a movement today to sing... Uh, songs to write songs songs s-o-n-g-s that are literally the words of the psalms uh, some have have done that uh, the gettys are real famous for doing that um, there's a another female artist that has done it as well matt papa has put out an entire uh, album of of psalms not hymns but psalms and so it's truth and so what they're doing is they're singing the Psalms of Scripture as a confessional to the Lord. We, we confess these things to be true. It's not just that the songs are full of truth and instructional when they come to us to, to correct us, but they're also confessional. When you sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness, you are confessing a truth. You're saying that that is true and it's true in my life and it's personal for me. You're saying that. It's confessional. And friend, if you, if you sing music and you're singing those words and they've just become old hat to you and you're not thinking about what you're confessing anymore, you need to get into your Bible and you need to be reminded of what it is that you're confessing. That Jesus is our cornerstone. And when you confess that, don't confess it with just simple lip service or empty shell. But that ought to be full and rich. Whenever your heart is is so wrapped up in the fact that, that I believe this with all of my heart, and then you sing it with all that you are, this place the roof would come off because of our singing of these truths. We confess these things to be true. And number five. And this one I, I, I hesitate to even, to even say because I don't want you to misunderstand. And, I, and before, before it even goes up on the screen, I want to just share my heart with you. Um, music is a heart language. 
Music is something that becomes a tool, a medium, where the truth of God's Word is carried to the heart of a believer. And through that vehicle and the truth entering their hearts, they are stirred again and again and again. Music can never be disconnected then. Listen to me carefully. Music can never be disconnected from the culture to which it serves. In the same way that the gospel message never changes, and we must change our methods when we take it to the culture, music, listen to me carefully, must change and it must be dynamic because it is only a vehicle. If it is all about the truth and the substance, then the music is only a vehicle to carry that truth to a people who are celebrating it to be true. So if that's true, then number five, congregational singing should be cultural. And where do I get that from the text? Well, he says singing to one another, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there is a variety of things that are helpful in our singing and that lead us to worship. By the way, music cannot music is not a synonym for worship. It is one way we worship. We worship in the word, we worship through prayer, we worship through obedience, we worship through response, all of those things. We've got to be careful. But music is a method through which different cultures worship. And I promise you, I promise you. You go to a different church in the Funiac Springs, there will be a different culture of music there. Be it another uh, one of our Southern Baptist churches. You could even go to two of our Southern Baptist churches and I promise you, you'll get a very different experience at their church than you do at our church. Because music is cultural. There are even some churches, if you travel up north into some of our, some of our uh, kind of cities and metroplexes, you'll see that there's art being used in culture and there's different forms of things happening in, 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 in worship because worship, the gathering of God's people, is an expression of culture. That does not mean, and I want to be clear, that does not mean that our immorality in the culture or our secular worldview in the culture comes into worship. Rather, it means that the culture is being redeemed by Christ, amen? And that some of their forms of worship as they come in, as new people come in and new forms of worship come in, that these things can be used to the glory of God and to the upbuilding of His church. So music is cultural. I told our kids last week, and some of you may have heard and gone, what in the world did our preacher just say to those kids? Um, I told our kids when we were practicing in, in children's choir, by the way, they're going to be singing next week. I'm, I'm excited about that. They're going to sing to you all about how they are a child of God. Just a, just a beautiful thing to hear them sing. And, and last week, uh, just being able to step back and listen to them sing, sometimes I have to be more present vocally and so that they'll hear and, and be able to follow. But last week, literally, um, they were overwhelming me and I, I couldn't sing over the top of them. And so I just quit and just played and listened. And as they sang about being a child of God, I was moved. I was moved by God's Spirit because of their worship. And here's what I said to them. I looked at all of those little children in the face and said, don't ever, ever, ever lose your heart to just freely sing in worship to your Creator. 
Don't ever lose your heart for worship. And, and so I said, there is coming a day, and it will come soon, that if you continue to lead in that way, that by God's plan, you will become the next choir at Southwide Baptist Church. Why? Because you worship. Because you sing. And as you sing, you will lead others to sing. That's just what God does. It's the spirit-filledness of His church. And I warned them. And I said, and with that, don't ever, ever refuse to sing the songs of the generation that follows you. Because right now, these are your heart language. One day, the day will come when you will sing songs for someone else's heart language. And please do that. Continue to stir this up in our church. Because this is what music is about. It is a cultural expression, an opportunity for people to celebrate truth and confess truth and instruct one another and be reminded that God's Word is true and that His character is true. And, and there are days I want to just tell you that I need to hear you sing about that because my heart needs that. And there are days you need to hear others around you singing about that because you don't feel it. But as we sing together, God does something unique. By the way, all of this rooted in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you cannot sing from the depth of who you are if Jesus has not consumed your life. And if Jesus has consumed your life, you cannot help but sing about who He is. Because the Gospel is hope, church. Amen? The Gospel is hope. For those who are broken, those who are hurting, the Gospel is hope. For those who've lost a son at 28 years old, the Gospel is hope. For those who are struggling with other things in their life, the Gospel is hope. And we rest on that hope. And we sing about that hope. Can I ask you this morning, do you know that hope? Have you trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? I mean, is there really something in you to sing about? I want to invite you to bow your heads all across the room as we enter a time of response. And just a moment for you to say... I'm going to trust in, in the Lord today and um, just, just rest on Him. And maybe, maybe that's just needing new hope. Maybe you just need to come and confess to the Lord, I, I haven't been singing or I haven't been <clears throat> viewing our congregational singing in the right way. And today I want, to, I want to change that. And Lord, I need Your help. Others of you in this room, you'd say, I need Jesus today. And so I'm, I want to invite you to come in just a few moments. You don't know Christ this morning, but you can. In just a few moments, I want to ask you to step out of from where you'll be standing and, and come down this aisle and say, Pastor, today I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Today I want to surrender my life. And so I want to invite you to do that. And so in just a few moments, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And the music's going to be playing and you, you come. So all across the room as we stand, let's pray together. And the music will begin. Lord, I pray that you'll have your way in this place. And God, that you would be glorified by the decisions that are made. Lord, whether they're public or private, I pray that You would uh, be glorified by those things. And, and the, Lord, that, that we would be a people who would be singing, singing, singing to the glory of God. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, 
please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ. Thank you.